Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. Dr. Melanick is a forensic pathologist and her husband, TJ, is a writer. And together, they're the authors of the New York Times bestseller, Working Stiff, as well as First Cut, the first in the Dr. Jesse Tesca series. Book two in that series, Aftershock, was just released on January 19th. And today we're going to talk about that book as well as life and forensic pathology in New Zealand. All right, here are Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. Thanks for coming back on the show. Welcome back. This is your second time on the podcast. Yes, that makes us friends of the pod. Isn't that what they call it now? <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. It's our pleasure. <laughs> That's right. Friends of the pod. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to talk mostly about your brand new book, which just came out aftershock which is the uh second in the dr jesse tesca series after the first book uh first cut but before we get into that so i want to talk a little bit about you you've recently as of july of last year you've recently moved to new zealand from from the uh, u.s and so I, i want to talk about that a little bit and i know you've you've spoken about this in other podcasts other places and uh, i know dr melanick you've written about it as well but can we briefly talk about how and, and why you, you made that move? Well, in short, what happened was I was working at uh, the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's Office. I had been placed in charge of the COVID-19 response for the pathologists. I put together protocols for what I thought needed to be done in order to keep people safe. And yet they weren't being followed. And I didn't feel safe at work. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. we have uh, two daughters in high school. They were locked down at home. They had online learning and it was very frustrating for them with the challenges for their healthcare and learning differences that we've dealt with. Uh, we were frustrated beyond belief by the American response, both on the county level as well as primarily on the federal level. And so when I got an invitation to come and be the forensic pathologist in Wellington, New Zealand, I was acutely aware of New Zealand's successful COVID-19 response. And I figured, well, this is not only an excellent professional opportunity, but it gives um, our kids a chance to be able to go to school in person. And uh, we should take this. We should try it out. That was the biggest thing was that our our kids could uh, lead normal lives. But also New Zealand had, had always been on our bucket list. We just figured that we'd come here when we're empty nesters because uh, we have have two kids who are in high school now and two who are in college and uh, New Zealand never has enough forensic pathologists. And so a lot of the time they end up bringing people from the United States and Canada to work here for a few months at a time. So we always thought that we would, uh, that Judy would take that job for three months or six months and we'd come over here for a while. Yeah. Instead we're, we're over here now uh, indefinitely. Indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. So the position Mm -hmm. that I'm filling hadn't been filled for about two years. There was a rotating group of forensic pathologists who would come sometimes from the States, Canada, the UK, every three months they would switch out and, it worked for us because they're grateful to have someone who's permanent and I'm grateful to be here with my family and learning new things, being on the front line of a successful COVID-19 response has taught me a lot. And another part of mm-hmm. Judy's sort of mission here is to, is to uh, help set up more forensic pathologist training in New Zealand for yeah. Kiwis. Oh, okay. Okay. So they, they reached out to you. Was this completely out of the blue or had you been in, in contact with them before? 
No, it was completely. It out of was the blue. A, well. They were they were recruiting the position at the last National Association of Medical Examiners meeting. I think they were they had a uh, or mm. AFS meeting. They had a table there and were trying to get people. Well, that sure, was before in the before COVID. times. In right. the before times, and we were saying, yeah, sure, someday we'll go to New Zealand. Yeah, right. But as right. soon as I right. got the the re- recruitment email, I'm not sure it went out to lots of professionals besides me. I don't think I was specifically targeted, though. I, I I'd like to to think that they chose me because of my credentials. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So you already mentioned part of the reason uh, for the move then was New Zealand's response to COVID and how effective it was. Can you, can you talk about what is that response? It was absolutely textbook what other countries should be following. And there is a tendency to kind of poo-poo New Zealand's response is, oh, they're an island. Oh, they're mm-hmm. only 5 million people. I've even heard uh, things said about Kiwis that are just patently untrue, like they're sheep. They'll follow anybody, <laughs> yeah. which is just yeah, driving you know, meet Kiwis. No, yeah. that is not the case. They're very much like Americans, very independent uh, thinking and strong minded. So um, I don't buy that for a minute. Basically, the recipe for getting to COVID zero to getting to to I've been actually actively promoting hashtag COVID zero or zero COVID because I think that it is doable Mm -hmm. is number one uh, lockdown except for essential services for about six to eight weeks. And the reason is, is because the virus life cycle has not really changed. Even in the course of this last year of the pandemic, it still takes about two weeks for people to get sick. Uh, to present with symptoms, about two weeks for them to either recover or die, and then another two weeks to catch the remaining outliers. So if you really shut down and do an enforced shutdown, but more importantly, pay people to stay home for six weeks, then you can get the outbreak into sufficient control that you can then release the lockdown slowly and test and contact trace your way out of it. But simultaneously, you have to monitor the borders. You can't just let people come in from other countries that aren't doing the same thing. So in New Zealand, they created managed isolation facilities where everyone who comes in through the border has to go through a two-week quarantine where they're tested at day three and day 12. And then if there are Outbreaks as a result of leaks from the managed isolation facilities, as we've experienced a few weeks ago in Auckland and most recently now in Northland, um, you have to address whatever the problem is, whether it's a ventilation problem or whether it's a PPE problem at the managed isolation facility. But you have to get the population to contact trace, to cooperate with contact tracing. And that's done with good public relations and educations. It's It's, it's something I think Americans don't understand about about New Zealand and COVID is that it's not that this is a magical island where there's no COVID. There's plenty of COVID here. It's coming in off with people off of airplanes and then it's contained in hotels and those people are either treated or they get over it. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. they come and join everybody else. And everybody else, we are contact tracing like mad mm-hmm. and we're wearing masks on public transit and in some other situations so that when one of those COVID cases does slip out into the community, as it will, especially now with the with the new, more virulent strains, we can right. address it. And it's working. It's really it's, it's really working. But you can't contact trace and you can't do genomic sequencing at the level that you need to until you get the overall infection rate in the population down. And in order to do that, you have to lock down and make it an enforced and supported lockdown. People will stay home if they're paid to stay home. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, the, the most that's important the step, which, which may be the hardest in the United States. It shouldn't be. We do have the money to do it. They we have don't the have money. the... Um, 
maybe the cultural and political will. I don't but, know. But I mean, the bottom line is economic. It, we have spent yeah. in the United States more money on a year of half measures that has cost half a million lives than we would have if we had just done the go hard and go early approach that New Zealand. Yeah, does. New Zealand's economy is doing really well right now, which surprised everyone, especially the, the Kiwis. They right. uh, were worried that they were going to continue to be in a recession like everybody else. But it turns out that if you have a heavy, a, a, a healthy populace, you can have a healthy economy. They're helped by the fact that they're they're largely a self-sufficient economy in some ways. They grow a lot of things that they export and instead can can keep here. I I, I mean we don't we don't know a lot about it, but it's not a a heavy import economy. One thing that they have lost is uh, is tourism from overseas, but they're they're yeah, making sure. do and it's it's going it's going really well. And we, and we were when we were in managed isolation. I don't want to give the impression either that managed isolation is like prison because it isn't. It's not. And it's not like a vacation, which some some Kiwis were under the mistaken impression that people were getting a free government vacation for two weeks. It's not like that at all either. You are in a hotel for two weeks and uh, it wasn't a lot of fun, but it was fine. We were very we were especially very happy to do it because we were eager to come here and and try to live normal lives. And we wanted to see what a proper response was. So seeing it from the inside, seeing how a managed isolation facility was uh, reacting. And during the time that we were in managed isolation, there were some uh, cases in the news of people who had escaped from managed isolation and they had put up some barriers and uh, security to prevent that from happening. So it was really interesting to see how uh, the government and the government, how the government reacted, but also how the government got everybody on board, how they communicated to the people uh-huh. uh, through regular briefings and explain what was going on so that people understood that it was part of keeping them safe and keeping the economy going. So these regular briefings, like how, how regular were they daily or weekly or what? Daily. Oh, every, yeah. day. Every, every, every day, every day, during, during really? the height of the pandemic, every yeah. day. And now it's down to, I think once or twice a week. Their equivalent like of Dr. Fauci would go and have a press conference every day every and very day. frankly tell people what was going on. Yeah, there are even tea t- we have a tea towel with Ashley Bloomfield. Yeah. Dr. Bloomfield is the equivalent of Dr. Fauci here in New Zealand. And he's and a national hero. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, absolutely a hero. Wow. Okay, okay. So I was going to ask you, and but I think I already know the answers. Do you, do you think that this could scale up to a much larger country like like the U.S., this kind of response? I do think it can scale up to the United States because I think that we now have an administration that is not denying science anymore and an administration that has uh, good public relations uh, apparatus. It's starting. You're already seeing Dr. Fauci uh, freed and unencumbered, and he's speaking out regularly. You could just see his face glowing. I think uh, I wrote about it most recently in a MedPage mm-hmm. Today article. Just to, to you can see the difference in the press briefings coming from uh, Jennifer Sackey from the White House. Um, so it really public health at its core is public relations. You have to have a good public relations apparatus. You can call it propaganda if you want, but really what it is is about sharing accurate scientific information, actionable information so that the people know what to do. And when they see positive results, when they see fewer deaths, when they see the vaccines actually getting rolled out, then they will trust it. I think that the trust in government will increase as the credibility and the competence increases on the federal level. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, if 
you know, I wonder if the, like you said, the trust in government, that's certainly something we didn't have here when this all started. Did, was there trust, do you think in, I guess you weren't there at the time, but in New Zealand, when do you think when this started? From what we've, we've heard from people, it wasn't dissimilar to the United States. It's a, it's a pretty 50-50 split politically here. And there were plenty of people who thought that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was going too far and being hysterical and that it was going to cripple the economy and not stop the, the virus. And those people were wrong. And more mm-hmm. importantly, uh, they labor the party that was in charge of the response. It was just dumb luck, I guess, that they were in charge at the time. No, it wasn't dumb luck, well, but it's, it was, some, yeah. it's some piece of, uh, of, the, of electoral engineering that we don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, we're still America. trying to understand. Parliamentary system thing that we don't really get. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But it was a close thing that labor was in charge. Right. And if the other government, the, the Nas- if the other party, the National Party, had been in charge, they have essentially said that they would have taken much the same approach that uh, Britain has taken and the United States has taken. And the results probably would have been just as bad for New Zealand. In fact, worse, because uh, New Zealand does have a Maori population that, and a Pacifica, a Pacific Islander population that is uh, underserved, and we have much fewer uh, ICU beds and healthcare professionals here in New Zealand yeah. um, in terms mm, of sure. – it would have it been uh, tragic. So, we don't want to get too much into community yeah. politics because we are guests here we and are. we don't, we don't <laughs> really understand it. And but we're learning. Right. For, for sure, it was not I, – I can tell you that the entire country was not united behind no. this approach at all. That's correct. And but but as a result of the successful approach, the Labour government actually came back for a resounding oh, yeah. win yeah. at the next election. So the New Zealand, the Kiwi elections were right before the American ones. Yeah. And it was a pretty uh, amazing affair. It was a big blowout. <laughs> By comparison, yeah. it, it, was, was a blowout. it was a big blowout and, and people um, are united behind yeah. Behind the approach now, of course, there are some yeah. outliers. There are some people who who still think it was a bad idea, but uh, it's sure. it's really working. And it, uh, yeah, and and that's the thing is you can't argue with success. You right. can't argue with the economic success and the fact that we have. I mean, how many people have died? It's so few relative to the population. Yeah, twenty five or twenty. Yeah, so I mean, and and wow. even the infections they're just being held at the border uh, in the hotels with you know occasional outbreaks, but. It, they're being handled on a local level, which is exactly what the plan was. I think it can be done. It can be scaled up in the United States. It's just a mm-hmm. question of leadership. Okay, I'm an American chauvinist. I believe, even even though I'm in New Zealand now, I believe we can do anything. Yeah. And I believe with the right leadership, the American people could, uh, yes, could implement Im- implement a system like New Zealand's yeah. that would defeat COVID. And, and we've seen it before. I mean, let's take the analogy. World War II. When Americans all came together after 9-11, I mean, I was alive then and we saw right. America come together and the administration had all their support. So it's really a question of getting the information out there, publicizing it, um, making it a patriotic act to stay home, but also financially supporting people so that they don't rebel because they can't have any means to support themselves. I think that's sure. the most important piece. piece yeah, of, that's the of biggest the puzzle, piece of the puzzle is, is financial support. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. And now, would probably would, be the hardest one to, to deal with, but anyhow. You've written about the uh, the contact tracing that they do now in New Zealand. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit as far as how that works. And then the reason I want to ask about this is I imagine that kind of thing would be uh, get a lot of back, backlash here in the U.S., kind of some sort of Big Brother 1984 kind of thing. But can can you describe what the contact tracing, how that works there? Well, we have, and, and a lot of people have an app on our smartphones 
that does the contact tracing where you walk into any public place and there's a QR code, one of the sort of 3D looking QR codes. Mm-hmm. You point okay. your, your smartphone at it and it makes a little click. And then it has recorded that you went into that business at this time. Okay. And you that, that record stays with you on your phone. It does not get uploaded to the government as far as I know. It's called the New Zealand COVID Tracer app. And there's a they have a Twitter uh, feed that's worth following. It's called Unite Against COVID-19. And just to see the daily information and the briefings um, in tweet format, it's really interesting. So according to the last tweet 18 hours ago, the New Zealand COVID Tracer app now has 2,535,581 registered users. <laughs> and there, there are 5 wow. million people in New Zealand. Yeah. So that's half the population. And there are also other apps besides the government app. There are a lot of other private apps that have different privacy um, guidelines. And what happens is it it records it on your phone, but you you have also registered with the government. So if there is an outbreak and they trace, and and the, the key part is if the person who has been infected has also been doing the same thing, then the, uh, the government will alert you, hey, you were in the store at the same time as somebody who is confirmed to have had COVID. You Go need get to get tested. tested yeah. Right. Or you should okay. you should self-isolate until we know more about this or whatever. They yeah. they they tell uh, people the steps that the public health authorities and the scientists think that they should take. Yes, you get the push notifications on your phone saying you need to quarantine. Here's your testing center. We will arrange for it. It's free. (laughs) And that that way they can contain the pandemic. Now, there's also a Bluetooth component, which I don't entirely understand. But I think what it means is my phone is checking in with other phones on the street, other people, just ordinary people. And my pass by or something. and, And essentially logging that I was near that person at that time. And then that is folded into the response also when there's an, an outbreak. That's much more big brotherish. But, of course, people point this out all the time that we do this all the time. It's just yeah. that the right. government doesn't right. have that information. It's, it's Facebook or giant Google. Corporations yeah, yeah. Exactly. Information. Yes, and I understand exactly. that that would be a big cultural push for Americans to – to allow that to happen. And I don't know if it would, but here in, in New Zealand, it, it's working really well. It's I think even in the States, there are plenty of people who give out their information to corporations that they trust, whether it's Facebook or Google or, or right. their own actual phone, Apple. So it's just a question of creating a system that people feel empowered that the data belongs to them and right. that it's really there to keep themselves safe so that they can be notified if they were exposed. And, yeah, that's and the, that's most the important key. Thing. So it is doable. It's it's do it's feasible even in the United States. It's just a question of being transparent about the uh, privacy aspects of it right. and let, and being honest about it. Okay. Last question about New Zealand. Then before we move on to the book, aside from COVID, what's been the most difficult part of adjusting to life there in a, in a completely different country? Well, we have to drive on the wrong side of the road. Or <laughs> the other as, side, of the, road. Say, the, the right side. side. Okay. Right. Yeah, that took a little getting <laughs> it's used to. The left side of the road. But it's- um, I bet it did. And, uh, yeah, driving in general in in New Zealand is a challenge, especially here in Wellington. We're in the capital city of Wellington, which has notoriously narrow roads and uh, fairly insane drivers. And this is—I'm a native Bostonian, and I think they're insane. <laughs> I lived in Los Angeles for ten years, and they're they're pretty crazy. But that's yeah, you know, that's 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 one thing. And also another thing that I, that I find really interesting is that New Zealand 
doesn't seem to have something that Americans really take for, for granted and have taken for granted for 30 years, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think me, especially having been a stay-at-home dad, having pushed a stroller laden with kids all over various American mm-hmm. cities, I appreciated that this piece of advocacy by the disabled community benefited everyone. It was benefiting me as an able-bodied dad pushing pushing a stroller. That mm-hmm. doesn't they don't seem to have anything like that here. So when you're pushing a push cart back from grocery shopping, you have to go off curbs. If you're a bicyclist, you find that uh, your bike lane just ends. Uh, or the barriers. There yeah. are barriers. Yeah, there are physical barriers on on sidewalks to which are meant to prevent cars from driving there, but which also have the effect of stopping people who uh, yeah who are not uh, able to just walk around them. Uh, I found that pretty shocking because I think of New Zealand as a very progressive place, and it is. But I think it just shows that sometimes in your own culture, you have a piece of legislation or some life-changing um, life-changing thing that, that uh, other people may not even know about. Uh, so I, I found that yeah. something that's a little bit difficult to uh, to deal with is just walking around is more difficult. And and for you know for medicine and practicing, one of right. the things that New Zealand has that the United States doesn't have is uh, what's called the ACC, which um, we've written about as well for in MedPage today. It's a no fault insurance system where. Uh, Basically, doctors can't get sued, so there's no liability for medical malpractice. It's all managed by a fund, a private fund that employers and self-employed people pay into so that if somebody is injured, uh, whether it's a motor vehicle accident or whether it's a a medical malpractice issue, you know, an accident uh, at the hospital or it's just a trip and fall, anything that's an accident, they basically have all medical care covered through the ACC. Um, so the, this experience happened to me when we were here in Wellington. I had something blow in my eye and I had a corneal abrasion, ended up in the emergency room to try to treat it because oh. I, I was hearing, I was in excruciating pain. This was two weeks in. And I showed up at the emergency room front desk and gave them my my insurance card and my credit card. And they said, oh, we don't need that. It's covered on the ACC. And I went, what? <laughs> what was that? Um, oh, so wow. that that is really different for medical practice, that you don't have this thing hanging over you. And also as an individual, you don't have to worry that if you get injured, you're not going to be able to support yourself and you're not going to be able to pay for your um, your medical care. It's covered. But you can see we're really digging deep to try to find Oh, what are the problems we faced moving here to New Zealand? Their army right. all the driving is a little hard. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, Kiwis uh, really are wonderfully kind and welcoming people. Yeah. And we and our girls in school and and everything else, we've we've found it uh, just delightful to move here. We really have. Okay, that's great. That's great. What about uh, are there any differences like for you, Doctor Melanick, in forensic pathology? As far as practicing that, any different procedures or something like that? Yeah. Um, well, the, the the death investigation system in New Zealand is a national system. So it's kind of equivalent to a state system in the United States. So like uh, New Mexico, for instance, has a, a system that's a state-based system. And so that's, that's kind of similar to that, except that there are no, it's not a medical examiner system. It's a coroner system. So it's a, it's a, influenced by the UK system, but the coroners are not physicians and they're not law enforcement like they are uh, sheriffs in California. The coroners are all attorneys, so they know the law, but they don't know medicine. And so it is a 
it's really interesting because I've had to adjust to it. It's got some pluses and it's got some minuses. They do distinguish between forensic cases and what they term coronial cases. So a forensic case would be anything that the police finds suspicious or concerned about foul play, where there might be some sort of criminal act. But um, those would be the homicides, you know, the um, hit and run motor vehicles, things like that. But the coronial cases are all the other forensic cases in the United States that we would term, um, you know, the accidents, suicides, uh, sudden uh, cardiac death at home where a person doesn't have a medical history. So they, they mm-hmm. do split those up in a way that's different from the states where you have different pathologists doing one set of cases and a different and a different pathologist doing another, which means that in the states I've spent quite a bit of time doing death investigation, calling up families, sometimes going to crime scenes, you know, to interacting with the police or the family. And here I'm really separated from them. All of that is done by the coroners, and I'm really there just to do the autopsy. So there's a lot less death investigation here for the forensic pathologist to do, with the exception of the homicides. And of course, there are almost no gunshot wounds. Right. That's and the ones that there difference. are are usually suicides. Yeah, right? very few gunshots okay. compared to the states. Okay. I mean, I was doing a gunshot. We, I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware of hashtag this is our lane, but I was doing yes. in Oakland yes, I am. Um, about one or two gunshot wound cases a week. And I'm in a population that's, you know, in terms of the ratio of people to pathologists, I'm about a population, similar population here in Wellington. And I think I've had two gunshot wound, maybe three gunshot wound cases in the past six months. New Zealand had a really horrible terrorist attack about a year and a half ago that was effectuated with guns. And after that, they, uh, yeah, they went much the same route that, uh, that Australia had years ago and uh, really um, Cracked down. regulated uh, yeah. gun usage in this country in a way that it would be very hard for Americans to do without, without major sort of constitutional changes. There are still plenty of guns, but they're hunting rifles mostly and, and shotguns because there's, there's a it's, it's a yeah. largely rural country and there's a lot of there's a lot of hunting. Handguns are, mm-hmm. I think, relatively rare. OK, let's let's move on to the book then. So the new book is called Aftershock, and this is the sequel to First Cut. So the first of all, the, the last time you were on the podcast and we talked about First Cut, and you were in the process of writing Aftershock. But at the time, uh, the working title was Crosscut, I think you said. So w- when did when did the title change? I don't remember when exactly. We're, we're fortunate to be part of a professional team. We are published by Hanover Square, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. So uh-huh. we have uh, professional editors, proofreaders, designers who are working on our book. And our brilliant editor, John Glynn, I'll put in a, a plug for, for Glynn, he came, he, he came to us and, and, uh, and proposed that they wanted to change the title because the way we had or- originally envisioned the series was that each new book would be a cut, right? First cut, right. cross cut, undercut, uppercut, uppercut, eventually cut the cheese, cut the cheese says Judy, <laughs> eventually getting to final cut, right? Uh, okay. And we thought we were being very clever doing that, and perhaps we were, but John pointed out that that sort of cliche is played out, uh, especially in noir detective fiction like we're writing. It's more of a – I shouldn't call it a cliche, but it's its um, its something that you find more in cozy fiction, which is a very different sort of detective fiction than, than we write. It's n- in no way inferior. I love reading cozy fiction also, but it, was, it didn't fit with the um, – 
with the sort of vibe that we were trying to to create. So uh, we ca- they I think, I think they, they came, came up, up with, with a title. bunch of titles. Yeah, they, yeah, they and, came up with a bunch, and I think we picked Aftershock yeah, among them. Right. Okay. It was already the earthquake was already in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what I was going to ask. Like the, the so the, the earthquake was there, and it just made sense then to go with the Aftershock title. Yes, yeah. the, the earthquake uh, plot was already the book was already written, and the earthquake plot was already in there, and the title oh, after okay. came from that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the title okay. change came came about uh, towards the end of the of the editing process, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. So, how did you come up with this round of editing? Sorry. Gotcha. Okay. How did you come up with the idea then to to have the earthquake in there? Was that an early part of the story, or went? How did that develop? Yes, it was. We wanted to write about San Francisco and the building trades in this yeah. book large or was one of the things that we wanted to explore. And we figured, well, that's a good opportunity at some point in San Francisco, you know, we're writing there thrillers. So we gotta have yeah. Also, Judy and I are survivors of the 1994 yeah. Northridge quake in Los Angeles, which was a 6.7 earthquake and very destructive. And uh-huh. our experience there is something that I that I wanted to write about. So when when you read this book and, and you're in the earthquake scene, the things that the characters are going through and and aftershock like first cut is a first person narration. So the things that that Jesse is that they're going through her head and the things that she is observing are directly from our observation. Yeah, that was a direct quote. From right. You there's, there's a character. There's a character yeah. who just keeps saying, oh, this is bad. This is really uh-huh. bad. This is really bad. That's all you can say over and over again. That's what <laughs> I, I was saying at yeah. four o'clock in the morning on on that morning of the Northridge quake. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So besides the fact that uh, earthquakes are a big part of the story of San Francisco and and makes it much more real, the earthquakes are a event that would impact the forensic pathologist, the medical examiner's office. And it's something that people don't necessarily think about. But I, you know, I've been involved in uh, several mass fatality events or multiple fatality incidents um, in my job as a forensic pathologist, first in New York during uh, Mm 9-11, then American Airlines crash number 587 in Queens. The ghost ship fire in Oakland. Oakland. We also had a, a, a balcony collapse that killed oh, several yeah, uh, students yeah. in Berkeley. So I, I wanted to capture that feeling of what it's like to have to respond to a, a, a multiple fatality incident and simultaneously continue to do your job investigating your job, routine right. murders and uh, suicides and accidents that, that simultaneously juggling those two things and the stresses that would put on the characters. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really good point. I've been uh, with other guests that I've had on the podcast. We've talked about, you know, how the the COVID response in the laboratory has, yeah. you know, you've had to do the testing on top of the regular your your regular work. And I think that's similar to this the the mass fatality event. You've got to do that, and they do it in in the book as well. You've got to do your regular work and that additional work that this event uh, creates. Right, and we we explored that a little bit in our in our first book, the nonfiction working stiff. Yes. Because Judy, the, the real Judy, had to investigate homicides, one of which turned out to be a, a really sort of – turned out to be a serial killer in the end, actually, of uh, somebody who had killed multiple people. She had to do that while also doing the 9-11 recovery work, right. and it really impacted the, the speed with which you can do that job yeah. and uh, the resources that you have to do it. And also right. the stress on our family. I mean, I think that that was a big component of it, not just a working true. strip, yeah. but also in, I mean, in Aftershock, we're exploring 
how it affects Jesse and how it affects her relationship, um, her uh, romantic relationship with her partner. I think that's something that we've felt, you know, ourselves. Along with the mass fatality event, and then, which I, I, I was wondering if that was kind of a reference to uh, working stiff as far as, you know, kind of paralleling that with a little bit with your experience during 9-11. But then also Aftershock opens with a construction site accident, which is similar to Working Stiff as well. Was that a a deliberate parallel there too? It it wasn't really a deliberate parallel. I wasn't so much borrowing from that case, but from others that have been called out to industrial sites because of uh, accidents that have happened there. Uh, When I was at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office, uh, there was a a building that was actually being demolished. And during the demolish demolition 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 thank you that was the word he's the english (laughs) major during the demolition (laughs) process um a man had a big i-beam fall on top of him one of the workers there so i had to investigate that um i also had a woman who was injured by a printing press and ended up dying and i ended up testifying in the legal case associated with that one um so so it's not an unusual occurrence for a forensic pathologist to be involved in investigating workplace accident deaths because some of them are not accidents some of them are um uh, m- maybe homicides which is what we're exploring in aftershock um right. but some of them appear to be accidents. And then you find out that the management or the people who are in charge have disabled the the safety features or have told people to poke the machine with a stick, which is one of the cases that that, that that I've investigated. And of course, also because, uh, as I said before, one of our themes here is the building trades and the money sloshing around in San Francisco for development and, and putting up buildings uh, starting out with a construction accident was is a good place to to jump into that. Yeah, to cover to cover that aspect of uh, corruption in the system, which is what noir is all about. It's a noir detective. Yeah, that's what noir right. is. I'm curious then, compared to First Cut, were, were there differences in the writing process for Aftershock? Yeah, very, great differences. Uh, uh, writing novels, uh, there's essentially two general schools of thought about how to go about doing it. Uh, plotters and pantsers, okay? Plotters are people who sit down and work everything out in advance and then do the writing. Pantsers are people who do a lot of work researching their, developing their characters and researching their themes and generally where they want the plot to go. And then they just start writing and they see what happens. We wrote First Cut as pantsers because Judy had come up with an idea, handed it off to me, and then we ran with it. We Uh wrote... Aftershock as plotters. This time we sat down and we did a very long, detailed, uh, detailed good old fashioned outline. You know, um, letter A, number one, sub <laughs> sub number A, etc. We did that, and I found it really liberating as a writer because it meant that I could cobble together pieces of the story and have them in place and leave big gaps in between, and then go to Dr. Melanick and ask her, "Okay, so I've got this, and I need to get here." What kind mm-hmm. of case would you do in order to get me there? Yeah. What would and, you do next? Yeah. What would yeah. you do next? Or or how can how can we kill this guy? Yeah. Is, is, uh, is another is another question that I could that I could put to her. And then we would work together to get this really 
this really intricate outline done. And, and another thing that outline is great for if there's writers out there who haven't discovered this yet is writing dialogue yeah. because you can just do boom, 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 do all, do a lot of your dialogue and have it already there on the page. And so, then once we so had it's the less expository too. So you're not yeah. telling this happened next and this happened next. You can actually move the plot along using dialogue. Yeah. Or the places where you do have to do exposition, you just give yourself one little line item that says, explain what happens here. And then when you actually start writing, that's when you can get into the hard work of crafting that, which is what we, what we did. One thing that is true about both books though, is that we tend to put the science first. We put the clues out based on the science, and then we build the plot around the science. It's not unusual for us. In fact, we just recently came off of a email uh, tour for a writer's group where they would email us questions about how can I cause a wound that would allow my plot to develop in this direction. <laughs> and I was, I said to oh. TJ, she, you know, the, this, this particular writer is uh, trying to find a wound to fix, to a wound to match the plot versus making a plot to match the wound <laughs> and and we do we do the latter we usually pick the wounds first and then have the plot grow as a result of the science as right. a result of the injuries and i'll tell you one thing that was really gratifying of, of working off of that long outline is when i finally when i sat down to actually do the writing i printed the outline out and i would go through it and every time i finished an item i would just cross it out with a red pen and when I got to the bottom, I shredded it, right? Because I don't want, you know, it's you because the book has transformed from that outline idea into the thing that was on the page. And we have a, a bunny rabbit at home. So <laughs> we would then bring our uh, our shreddings to the to, to the, the rabbit, rabbit to um to, to for its waste. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's what became of our that of became the, of the first idea of our book. And then and then the, the way that we that we also work as writers is something that we did with uh, First Cut also. When when I would finish writing a section, I gave it to Judy to and she read it out loud. She has read this entire book out loud to, to me. Yeah. So she'd read it out oh. loud and then we would hash back and forth because it's very useful to have somebody read your work out loud, especially yeah. with a first person narration that's very uh dialogue heavy, which is the way I write. And so she would uh, she would read it, and we would. Uh, she would tell me what I needed to fix, science-wise, and and we would make some fixes. In first cut, you introduced all of the characters, and many of them uh, make a return here in, in aftershock, including my favorite, Sunshine Ted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody knows funny? Sunshine Ted from somewhere. Yeah, but aftershock, the book, then it seems to focus mostly on Jesse Tesca her development both professionally because now she's the deputy chief as well as her personal life. So was, was that intentional to just focus on her then is rather than all, all the other characters in this story? It, it came as a natural development of a first person of narrative story. So if you read, you know, if you read working stiff, which was my memoir, um, mm -hmm. I, we, kind of see, we didn't want to write another working stiff. We didn't want to write another nonfiction book about my own personal experiences. We wanted to go into fiction primarily because it gave us the opportunity to finish the stories. Because one of the frustrating things about forensic pathology <laughs> um, is that I only 
see a portion of the case. I don't necessarily track down who the criminal is. I don't find out about what happened uh, to the prosecution sometimes until years later. Um, maybe the police never caught the guy. Maybe um, they caught him and the case settled with a plea deal and never went to court. So I don't usually get the full story on my cases. I have a little piece of it. And fiction mm-hmm. allows us the freedom of being able to uh, expand on the stories and use our imagination to put multiple different experiences together. For me as a professional, I write what I know. So I think that focusing on Jessie and her character and how she's maturing and developing, you know, starting with First Cut, which is basically she's right out of fellowship, just like I was when I, we finished working stiff and she's now progressing in her career and rising up the ranks and realizing both the positives and the negatives of being in yeah, charge. She's, <laughs> she's the, being, being the deputy chief, especially in, yeah. in her office. She's, it's like, she's the first mate of a, of a boat. Like yeah. she has all of, she has to get things done. And um, ultimately the buck stops with her yet. She is still answering to the captain, the captain right? yes. to, the, to the chief. <laughs> she's not really in charge. Yeah. It's a tough position to be in. And anybody who's ever been in that position knows that, if you're in a in a, a well-run organization, it can be yeah. really, really wonderful. And if you're in a poorly run organization, it can be right. really hard. And it's the nature of pathology, too, because in pathology, we have to answer to a lot of different masters, right? There's the administration, there's the surgeons, there's the clinicians, there's obviously the patients. We may be in charge, but we're not really in charge. And there's a lot of regulations and rules that we have to follow, turnaround time, you know, accreditation requirements. So having her go through those stresses or that something that we're that we in pathology are all really familiar with and i wanted to share that with our audience but the other reason that we wanted to make it a book that was driven by jesse as a character and the other characters yeah. is because we love her yeah she drives us crazy she's infuriating and we <laughs> we love her and also uh, writing a first person mystery yeah. can be a challenge it's because harder. Everything that the reader needs to learn has to come through the eyes of your protagonist. Mm-hmm. So it, it just lends itself to really involving yourself in her life as the writer. Yeah. Getting into her head. Much like in uh, First Cut, the uh, Aftershock uses examples of actual real forensic pathology. Uh, there's a, a scene that Dr. Tesca is explaining what a bullet embolus is to a medical student during an autopsy. She also talks about the decomp crypt. And there's also a description of her when she's looking at microscopic slides. Why was that important to you to use examples of real pathology? I I couldn't do it any other way. (laughs) I mean, if I'm going to be writing about forensic pathology, I'm going to give people an inside look of what my life is actually like. And also that's always Uh been part of our mission. Part of the reason we want to write these novels is we want the science to be real and the police investigation to be real. And, Sure, and that comes sure. stems to some degree from our frustration at watching it on television. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I've, we've written and talked about this before, how uh, television portrayals of what pathologists do are not accurate. They have the pathologist working at all hours. You know, they have the pathologist running around with a gun and arresting and interrogating people as if they're police right. officers. So it was really important for me to hew to uh, what a real forensic pathologist would do. And, and, and Jesse breaks some rules, but she's not, oh, she really, breaks plenty yeah, of rules. But, but, but she doesn't <laughs> go outside the bounds of what an actual forensic pathologist Especially does. the things that she does in the yeah. morgue are entirely real. Yeah. So, so right. we, I mean, where, where we push the envelope has more to do with her character because she's, uh, curious and pushy and um, uncompromising detective. But 
a lot of what she does is not all that different from what I would do on a routine basis working for the San Francisco ME's office or the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's office. I was called out to death scenes. I would uh, call up family members and talk to them. I would meet with attorneys and uh, uh, sometimes had uncomfortable situations uh, in family meetings with a family and an attorney and the police department there where people are very upset and not happy with our investigation or with the uh, the way things are going because it impacts them financially. It was also very important to us to, to yeah. show that this detective of ours is part of a team right. to show what the medical legal investigators do, to show what the technologists do, what the, the toxicologist, how he yeah. can liberate you or get in your way. Right. You know, all <laughs> of these and, and the detectives right. and the beat cops right. and everybody else that, that she works with. It was it was important to us to represent those characters as well, which you can do in right. a noir setting for yeah. sure. And, and to also show all aspects of the job of a pathologist. In forensic pathology, we're not just in the morgue all the time or sitting behind a microscope. We do testify in legal cases. We do go out and interact with the community. We teach. Um, many of us have multiple hats <laughs> and we have personal lives. So I, I think that it it's a really wonderful job. I, I do want to promote it. I do want to encourage more people to go into forensic pathology. So I, I would yes. say that if anything, if there's a theme throughout all of our books is we're trying to encourage people to know more about the field and understand what it entails. So being accurate is part of that. Sure, sure. And that's definitely my my theme here on the podcast as well. You know, you mentioned the other areas that the forensic pathologist uh, interacts with the, the police and the legal system. And I know you've, you didn't just write what you thought those would be either. I mean, you researched these areas and you had uh, people that were experts in these areas that you could contact to ask about them as well. But I wonder how, how did that process work? Did you write the parts and then ask them, okay, does this make sense? Or did you say, well, this is the what we want to do, say, in the courtroom, and then they would tell you how it would go? Wh which way did that work? Well, we did both, actually, a, a little of each. Yeah, so okay. I have enough of an exposure of police procedures and legal testimony that I could write those sections to begin with. And then TJ and I would uh, finish the finish them, but we would also then check them with actual police procedures experts or DNA experts or attorneys to make sure that- And building trades experts. And Billy, yeah, we even yeah. had building mm, trades. Yeah. So we know enough about the subject to at least start the writing process, but um, we do also check with our experts before we- finalize it. As for the legal question, since you had asked about uh, how how the dialogue would go, I actually right. write legal questions for attorneys. <laughs> so anytime they're part of my job, besides being a forensic pathologist performing um, autopsies uh, for a coroner or a medical examiner, is I'm a medical legal consultant. So anytime that there is a wrongful death case, a person is it dies in a motor vehicle accident and then the family sues the, um, the, the manufacturer of the car or uh, someone dies in a building where there's a, a staircase collapse and uh, there's a lawsuit against the management of the building. I get hired either by the plaintiffs or by the defense. And in criminal cases, I'll get hired by either the prosecutors or the defense attorneys to review those cases. And it's not unusual for me to be asked by attorneys, by my clients, to write questions for uh, cross-examination of other experts. So that's actually part of my job. So I know how to formulate those questions and how to space them out in a way that an attorney needs to do to make their case. 
Okay. Do you enjoy that part of the job? Yeah, it's it's challenging because it means breaking things down. I would say the part of the job I enjoy the most is not so much writing the questions, but in seeing the answers and reading the depositions afterwards where my questions are asked and seeing how the other expert responded uh, to see whether they acknowledged the logic <laughs> that I'm mm-hmm. trying to bring about, because ultimately, you know, it's about the science. You want to, you want the jury to understand the science. I don't see opposing experts as my competitors. I see them as my colleagues. In fact, they many times are my colleagues. I meet them. I see them at meetings. We've worked together in the past. The important thing to do is to ask the questions in such a way that the expert has an opportunity to explain the science to the jury. That's that's the key. And this is why I enjoy writing courtroom scenes with Judy is because I come at it with what we need to achieve in the scene. And then she gives me the exact literal language that that <laughs> yeah. that Jesse would be faced with by these lawyers in the courtroom. So our, our courtroom scenes are, are, I think, very true to life. Yeah. So I would have to actually to answer your question. It's way more fun to write courtroom scenes with TJ than it is to write them for my <laughs> client's attorneys. <laughs> yeah. We're, okay. we're, we're in control yeah, of exactly. the outcome. Yeah. <laughs> where we know where it's going. Gotcha. Okay. The book is dedicated to the memory of John Richard Briley, which... You, you say is TJ's mentor. And on this podcast with a lot of the other guests, I talk a lot about mentorship and mentoring and, and things like that. So th- this actually is interesting to me. Can you tell me, uh, tell me about John Richard Briley? How, how, how did he have an effect on you? Yeah, Jack Briley, I worked for him for many years. Jack died in December of 2019. He was an Academy Award winning screenwriter he wrote Gandhi and Cry Freedom and many, many other things. And he was also a novelist and a playwright. And amazing uh, man. yeah, he was he was an, an, an amazing man to know and to have the privilege to work for and especially to watch him write. I, I watched Jack uh, write an entire novel from the one paragraph story idea through the 500 page rough draft all the way to the finished product and see it hit the shelves. And, and I typed it, <laughs> you know, um, oh, wow. and, okay. and, and eventually, yeah, eventually Jack trusted me enough that, that I, that I, I gave him a few edits, not, not many, I know. but he, the, the biggest thing that, that I, that I learned from him was how to kill your darlings is what, uh, you know, is, 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 a, is a, another cliche that writers use for the things that you write that you think are just so clever and have to get out there in the world. Those are the things you have to remove. Just cutting your work, editing your work. A lot of, a lot of writers say, oh my God, I hate doing that. I love doing it. And, and I learned how to do it from Jack because the screenplay is a very spare form of writing and you have to be absolutely ruthless in in cutting things and i would work with him on the screenplay and I'd be like no please you can't cut this scene oh i love it so much he'd say no it's got to go and i also learned from him how to drive narrative through uh dialogue which i didn't even realize i was i was learning through osmosis just by mm-hmm. word processing his work i worked for him as his assistant as a, a hollywood, hollywood assistant yeah. so you know um, um answering the mail and paying the bills but also actually word processing his work and then reworking it and everything else and uh, it was uh i was very very lucky to have worked with jack uh for many years and he really influenced my uh the 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 storytelling the storytelling skills that i had picked up 
in you, my life up until I met Jack and in university and everything else, he really ended up polishing them without my knowing he was polishing them. I would just want to add to the mentorship issue by, uh, since a people of pathology uh, podcast, that I had some excellent mentors in the field of forensic pathology. The foremost of one was Dr. Charles Hirsch, also who passed away right. uh, a few years back. And he was the chief forensic pathologist in New York City um, and taught me everything I needed to, to get through my uh, fellowship during a very difficult time in our history. I've had other mentors since then, and each one of them has been so important to me in recognizing how crucial it is that we mentor the next generation as pathologists ourselves. So I love teaching. I am so glad to be here where I have medical students and they call them registrars in New Zealand instead of residents. But to, to be able to uh, mentor others is a, a big part of why we write and a big part of why mm -hmm. I continue to do and love forensic pathology. Yeah, gratitude is something that we have really uh, had hammered into our own psyches yeah. in the last few months because we have such gratitude to the people of New Zealand for allowing us to come here. Mm -hmm. And it's it's made us kind of reflect on some other areas of our life where I, I recognize that I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And I think that Judy does too. And we want to pay it forward. So, I mean, if there is any pathologists or uh writers who are listening and want to reach out to us. We're very easily accessible. We have a Twitter feed. We have a Facebook page. It's it's really easy to find us. Uh, website, uh, drworkingstiff.com is, is our uh, writing website. And our books are lots of fun. Yeah. So, so we're really happy to promote them, help them uh, find what they need in order to uh, continue and succeed. Okay. Yeah. I will definitely include links in the show notes to places where people can connect with you. This has been great. I really appreciate this kind of behind the scenes look at Aftershock. Thank you both very much for being here. Thank, thank you, you. It's our pleasure. Here's a preview of my interview with Bruce Goldfarb, where we talk about his book, 18 Tiny Deaths. Let's let's move on then to the, the, the nutshell studies of unexplained death. What are these and when were they, when were they made? Well, at, at their at their simplest, they are a teaching tool. It's an exercise. Um, and uh, during this homicide, homicide seminar, you know, the curriculum which, you know, has changed very, very little since then. It's, you know, the facts of violent death haven't changed a lot. It's basically, you know, blade and bullets and you know, those sorts of things. So they, they learn about blunt force injuries and car force injuries and they observe an autopsy and they learn about drowning and poisoning and those sorts of things. So, how do you how do you practice observing a crime scene? Um, and, and that was one of the challenges they faced. You, you can't take the whole group out to a real crime scene uh, for various reasons. Right. Um, and so, you know, she called upon her background and her skills that she had to address that problem by making miniatures, uh, which is what they are. They're recreations of scenes or creations of scene, they're, they're, uh, they're not literal you know, translations of actual scenes, but they're teaching tools, they're examples, they're intentionally ambiguous, they're amazingly, exquisitely detailed. Um, there's 18 of them that exist in the collection. To hear more from Bruce Goldfarb and his book, which by the way features an introduction from Dr. Melanick, tune in to episode number eight of the People of Pathology podcast. Big thanks to Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell once again. It's always a lot of fun talking with them. The book title is Aftershock, and you can pick that up on Amazon or Goodreads or 
pretty much anywhere else you can buy books. I'll have a link in the show notes for that, and I highly recommend you check out this book. And don't forget to leave a review of the book. And while you're leaving reviews, you can leave a review for this podcast on whatever platform you're listening. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. If you like this episode and you know someone who might enjoy the book, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And there's a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress A Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show.